Hi, everybody. I have some exciting news. I am launching a Substack. I know. I keep telling you how I'm not a writer, and I'm still not a writer, but I am going to be writing about reading over on Substack. The Substack is called Unstacked, and you can find it at tracythomas.substack.com. There will be free options every Friday. There'll be a bunch of weekly roundups, announcements, all the shit I'm into. And then if you want to upgrade yourself to the paid subscription, I'm going to have author interviews, bonus episodes, anticipated reads, book pairings, community chats, all sorts of stuff. So, If that sounds like something you'd be into, go to tracythomas.substack.com and join Unstacked. And of course, I've got a special offer for you. If you go to tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10, you get 10% off your first year membership of Unstacked. You have from now until April 4th to redeem. Again, that's tracythomas.substack.com slash the stacks 10 for 10% off Unstacked. Okay, that's enough. Let's listen to this episode. Welcome to The Short Stacks, our shorter conversations with authors about their process and their books. I'm your host, Tracy Thomas, and today we are joined by Ramin Satuta. Ramin is a New York bureau chief at Variety, and before that, he worked at Newsweek and The Daily Beast. And in April of 2019, Ramin's debut book was released. It's called Ladies Who Punch, The Explosive Inside Story of The View. We get to talk about the book, The View, and so much more. And guess what? It's all spoiler-free. Before we get to that, just wanted to remind you that everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the link in the show notes. Use that link to learn more about the shows, people, and books discussed. Also in the show notes are links to all of our social media accounts so you can stay connected to Ramin and The Stacks. Be sure to follow us at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. If you want more of The Stacks, head over to patreon.com slash The Stacks to be part of our bookish community. Patreon allows listeners to help support this show while earning cool perks for themselves, including our virtual book club. To join, go to patreon.com slash The Stacks. If you like what you hear today, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast. You can do it wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, it's especially helpful. Okay, now it's time to get to our conversation with Ramin Satuta. All right, you guys, we are here today with Ramin Satuda, who is the author of Ladies Who Punch, the explosive inside story of The View. Ramin, welcome to The Stacks. Thank you very much for having me, Tracy. I'm so excited. So in about 30 seconds or so, do you want to kind of give us like the rundown of your book, what it is? Sure. So my book is called Ladies Who Punch, the explosive inside story of The View, and it is the um, definitive story of the talk show started by Barbara Walters in 1997 to give women a platform to talk about politics and daytime TV, which had never been done before um, until The View came along. Yeah. And I, I, I don't know. I'm like right in that age where I started watching The View, like when I would stay home from school. Um, and I used to like TiVo The View when I was in Me college <laughs> and was like so into it. And so when I heard, actually a friend of mine was on the podcast and he said one of the greatest books he'd read recently was this book. And I was like, what is that? And he's like, it's about the view. And I was like, what do you mean there's a book about the view that no one has told me about? Instantly went to read it. Um, and it is, it's so great because what you've done is you've turned this like pop cultural kind of phenomenon staple into like kind of serious 
you've kind of like given it like the serious journalist treatment, but because the show is so fun, the book is really fun. So how did you kind of meld like your work as a journalist and then this book that has like, or this story of these women that's like kind of crazy? So I always envision this book as a really serious book and a really serious journalistic project. And I was looking at books like Game Change, which looked into um, the 2008 yeah. presidential campaign and like, st- you know, books that relied heavily on reportage and access and taking you inside rooms where you weren't allowed in. And um, as a journalist, I've been at Newsweek for nine years and I've been at Variety for six years um, writing about um, entertainment and pop culture. And the one thing I've always written about that has gotten the most traction, most attention, most traffic, most comments are stories about The View. It's just a cultural phenomenon that people, even if they don't watch the show, they're curious about. They're interested in it, I think, because it touches on women in Hollywood. It's a very feminist show. It's about politics. It's about red states versus blue states. And so I started to sort of envision um, the show as a book after Barbara Walters retired in 2014. And when Rosie O'Donnell came back on the show um, for her second tour of duty, and she and Whoopi Goldberg were having this um, basically tug of war for the ownership of the show. And it seemed like a very Shakespearean story to me. It seemed like King Lear with the daughters fighting over the property, trying to see who would own the view. And, um, and, and it's been a, it was a three-year process and a very lengthy process, sort of getting all the interviews that I needed because I talked to more than 150 people for this book. Oh my God. Okay. Were any of the people that you talked to, did you get starstruck by any of them? Were you like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to like Rosie O'Donnell or was it all like, I'm a journalist. I do this all the time. I hate you all. <laughs> well, it wasn't I hate you all, but I've been a, I've been a journalist um, covering Hollywood for a while. So the starstruck thing definitely happens early in your career, early in my career where you would be sitting across, you know, the table and saying, oh my God, I can't believe I'm talking to um, one of the uh, first profiles that did for Newsweek was with Paris Hilton. And this was like during, (laughs) during that, you know, when she was going, went to jail and there was like the simple life. And it was like, um, you know, she's a big person in our culture at the time. And so, yes, when you, when you initially start to interview um, high profile people or actors or celebrities, there is that moment where you're like, I cannot believe I'm sitting across the table from this person. But with time and with experience and like any other job, it just becomes part of the job. And so mm-hmm. I always envision interviewing someone, um, this analogy that I, that I have that I hope makes sense. It's almost like you're walking into a dark room and there are things that you need to find in the room or things that you want them to reveal or ask them about. And um, you don't have a flashlight and you're just sort of trying to lead them to the important things that you want them to talk about. And you want them to talk about it openly and honestly and not give you sort of a scripted answer, which often happens um, when you're talking to entertainers. Um, uh, but I'd interviewed many of the co-hosts of The View before, and um, it, it was a lengthy process, which started with me writing emails and letters and asking Barbara Walters to sit down with me for lunch or asking Meredith Vieira to sit down with me um, for lunch on the Upper West Side near her house, um, sitting down with Jenny McCarthy and Star Jones. And so there were the thing that was challenging was there were so many co-hosts on the show that it was hard and felt unwieldy at times because there were so many people I needed to interview for the book to make it work. Right. Where did you start writing this book? And is that still kind of like the beginning? Like is where you thought the book would start? Is that still where it starts? I originally had a different prologue for the book, which started actually on election night. 2016. Um, 
2016. Yes, because I was at The View on election night, mm. and I had envisioned this. I know it was a it was a strange place to be on that night. Um, <laughs> Because <laughs> they had done, they were doing this, um, they were doing this primetime special that aired on Lifetime, and um, they were, you know, there were cocktails, and it was supposed to be this big party, and it was, it was, you know, everyone thought Hillary Clinton was going to win, and I had envisioned sort of this scene um, that that showed how The View had paved the way in its own way on television for the election of the first female president. Um, and I was backstage at the show and, you know, things started going differently than everyone thought and everyone was freaking out and it, the audience was booing every time a state would be called for Trump. Um, and I still thought that scene could work. So I wrote this, this entire scene of what it was like to be on The View on election night. Hmm. And it didn't really work because it was too far into the story. Um, and my editor had a really good um, note for me, which was that you kind of want, he's like, he was like in the Star Wars movie, you kind of want, you know, if you have this scene in the beginning, it's in the middle of the action. It shouldn't be at the end of the action. Right. So you need to come up with a scene that, that, you know, starts the book in the middle of the action. So you don't already have the end before you've even started, which was a brilliant note. And so I ended up writing um, this scene that was set in 2007. And this was during the time that Rosie O'Donnell was on The View and she and Barbara Walters were fighting for the show. And Rosie was very successful on the show the first time she was on it, but she was very difficult to work with and she was very hard on the staff and she wanted to turn the show in a lot of ways into her show, into the Rosie O'Donnell show, but very political. And so it, there's a scene that opens the book that, that has Barbara Walters wondering what to do and threatening to quit The View if ABC doesn't fire Rosie O'Donnell, which, which no one had known about. Right. That's yeah, it's very it is a great place to start because you're kind of like, oh, there's a lot there's a lot going on under the surface here. I wonder what you think about the change in the show. Um, I don't know if this is broad or just my personal experience, but as someone who loved the show and watched it a lot and now I don't watch the show at all, I actually didn't even know that Rosie had come back to the show at any point. Like I kind of had checked out by then. But I feel like the show now is a lot of like you know, viral clips of like Meghan McCain getting in a fight or like Joy Behar saying something or like Whoopi getting in trouble, but it's less about the show and more about these clips. And I feel like it used to be more about like the topics they were discussing. And if you've kind of noticed that shift as well, or like what you feel like that says about the show and like the future of the show. There is definitely an American Idol like phenomenon where American Idol was so groundbreaking and then the voice came along and all these other singing competitions came along and kind of took away the specialness and uniqueness of right. American Idol. And I think the view has also suffered from that because when Barbara launched it, there was nothing like it. And then, you know, now we have the talk and we have panels on CNN discussing, right. you know, the debates and you turn over to MSNBC and it's another roundtable of people debating and arguing about things. So I I agree that it's sort of been diluted in some ways because every time you change the channel, there's a version of the view that you see on mm -hmm. television. Um, but I do think that Trump's presidency has given the show renewed significance. It was on the cover of the New York Times magazine. Um, there are these viral clips, but um, roughly 3 million people still watch the show in daytime. And I think wow. it is a place that a lot of women go to to get their news. And these are scary times and unpredictable times. And I think having them on daytime TV is comfort food for a lot of people that are home during the day and are wondering what the latest headlines mean. 
Right. So let me, you kind of talked about the, the election party on the, on 2016 and that's kind of where you thought you were going to start with the book. And so I'm assuming that means that you'd already had the idea for the book and we're already kind of working on it. So my question is when you started, did you have an idea that Hillary and Trump were going to be such big kind of characters that popped in and out throughout the book? Or did that come to you after the election finished? And it was like, well, now I have to do this. I always saw Hillary as a really important character in the book because she had such a long history with the show, but I didn't really think that I'd be tracing the show's connection with Donald Trump after the election because like everyone else and all the pundits, I didn't think that Donald Trump was going to be the president. So I envisioned telling the show's story and um, history through the lens of of a Hillary Clinton presidency. Hmm. And when that didn't happen, I realized, I think it was essentially being there on election night and seeing there was a Trump impersonator backstage and he couldn't do the jokes anymore because they weren't funny because Trump was, it looked like Trump was going to be president. (laughs) And I started to see very clearly that Trump's presidency was going to give me tension that I didn't necessarily envision in the narrative because as far as you know, the dialogue about women's rights in Hollywood and, and equal pay for women and everything has gone. I think the election was a reminder that there isn't, there still isn't equality in the United States. And so that gave me a point of view to tell the story through the lens of, of the fact that, you know, why is the view not taken more seriously? Why did Barbara Walters have to fight so hard to get the show off the ground? Why are women treated differently than men um, on television? And entertainment industry. So it gave me thematically a structure that I didn't necessarily know I would have going into it because I thought it would be um, different, a different time politically when the book came out. Did you feel like that structure ended up being helpful for you? Um, I think in some ways it did. I think that, I think that it would have been easier for me to have written the book um, about how the show helped pave the way for Hillary Clinton's presidency um, and certainly it was a very difficult time in the months after the election to try to get people to sort of speak to me. Um, Rose O'Donnell didn't want to, didn't do any interviews for a year after the election. She was having a very difficult time with the fact that Trump had been elected president, rightfully so, because he had been such a bully to her and he had um, gone after her so viciously um, as a result of an impersonation that she did on The View in 2006. And so there was a period where I wasn't sure if the book would come together because everything seemed so uncertain Um, and the future of the show seemed uncertain. Um, But then as time went on, things started to take hold and I started to sort of restructure the book around what was happening in the United States. Right. Okay. I'm going to shift a little bit because I know you're a big fan of The View, obviously, and you've spent a lot of time with these women and the producers and everything. If you could put together a panel of five co-hosts based on all the co-hosts there's been on the show, who would be like your (laughs) dream team, top five, starting five peeps? You mean including the people that have been on the show or anyone that anyone on the planet earth that could be on the show. I was thinking anyone who's already been a co-host. So they had to have done the job. It would be like your hall of fame, your Mount Rushmore plus one. That's a really difficult question because I actually, when Rosie O'Donnell went back to the show as a viewer, I was really excited to see her on the show because she had been such a lightning rod and had really refreshed the show and made it relevant and interesting and edgy. And I was interested in what she had to say in 2015 when she, 2014, 2015, when she went back on the show, but she and Whoopi Goldberg clashed and it really didn't work out. But I think if I was doing a dream team, I think, um, 
I would definitely have Rosie O'Donnell on the show. Um, Barbara Walters, because Barbara Walters was always shocked and appalled at Rosie, and that tension was like great television. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Star Jones. Can you imagine Star Jones and Rosie on the same show? That oh would be great. Oh, my God. <laughs> um, and then Meredith Vieira. Okay. Although would Meredith be, Meredith would have want to be the moderator, and so would Rosie. See, it's very difficult. It's I have hard, sympathy yeah. for I have sympathy for for Bill Getty, who was the original executive producer of the show, because it was a very difficult show to put on, and he did it very effortlessly. Um, and then I guess the fifth person would be Joy, of course, because Joy's been on the show longer yeah. than anyone else. Yeah. Well, I, I when I wrote this question, I was like, who would I do? And I was kind of thinking, like, I would love to know what like Lisa Ling thinks about the world now. You know, like I feel like at the time she kind of was like not as like engaged with like she kind of didn't have like the open book personality but she's so freaking smart that I wonder like what insight she would have that like the show is lacking now because it's gotten like it has to compete with so many other talking head shows and like it has to make the news and stuff and I feel like she would be interesting to have back like to see her in this world and she saved the show because when they hired her um, they had Debbie Matinopoulos on the right. show, who was the young person and it wasn't working at all and she wasn't informed enough and she wasn't smart enough and she couldn't keep up with the headlines and the news. And Lisa came in as a serious journalist who had done journalism, you know, as a teenager on Channel One, which did you ever get Channel One in junior no, high school? No, uh, it was I grew up in California, they, so. <laughs> it was in, I grew up in Arizona and it would always show us Channel One. It was basically the sort of like <laughs> this short seven minute news program in the morning or 11 minute news program in the morning. And so Lisa Ling had done that and she was very experienced and um, was great on the show for the first three years. But what they found, and I wonder how this would play into her coming back now, was that she wasn't um, controversial enough. Right. And she wouldn't argue with anyone because she had very sensible, you know, middle of the road opinions. Right. And and Bill Getty, the executive producer, decided that what the show was missing really was a Republican because it was five women who were all liberal women in Manhattan talking about their lives. And it wasn't relatable to to half the country. Right. And that led to the search for Elizabeth Hasselbeck, which changed the DNA of the show. Right. And I remember her very well. But, yeah, I, the thing about Lisa, though, that I think would be interesting now is because – politics and like the world feels so polarizing now like you can't really be middle of the road it feels like I wonder how she would be you know like I wonder what that kind of more mild moderate like not moderate politically but moderate like personality type would do if you threw her into 2019 like pre you know primary election Donald Trump like all this stuff that's going on in the world and you're like okay Talk to us about this thing. Like, I wonder if we would see like a new side of her or if she would just like shut down. I don't think she was shut down, but I think she might be similar. Did you watch when Nicole Wallace was on the show? No. Nicole Wallace also sort of, even though she's was a Republican, she had very sort of middle of the road opinions and was mm -hmm. very sensible. And it doesn't always work on the view because yeah. the show is now associated so much with tension and right. debate and disagreements. And so if you have a co-host, what the producers found sort of in these last few years is if you have a co-host that agrees with everyone or that is very sensible and doesn't, isn't extreme on one end or the other, right. the show doesn't work as well. The ratings don't work as well because people watch for the debates and for right. these sort of extreme polar views. Yeah, that's totally true. Taking care of your health isn't always easy, but it should be at least simple. That's why for the last Three plus years, I have been drinking AG1 every day, no exceptions. It's just one scoop mixed in water once a day, every day, and it makes me feel nourished and strong enough to tackle 
whatever else might come my way. That's because each serving of AG1 delivers my daily dose of vitamins, minerals, pre and probiotics, and a lot more. It's a powerful, healthy habit that's also powerfully simple. The nutritional insurance that AG1 provides has been vital to keeping me productive and focused. It helps me cover my bases in just about the time it takes to fill a glass of water, scoop in one scoop of AG1, and then drink it. So I don't know, 75 seconds? With the perfect mix of vitamins, probiotics, and nutrients from Whole Foods, I'm not stuck trying to assemble it all by myself, which would have considerably worse results. AG1 saves me all the time and hassle, and it has made such a difference in my overall mood and especially my gut health, among many other things. But don't take my word for it. Go ahead and try AG1. Let me know what you think. Whether you notice you're needing more nutrient support than you're used to, or you just need an edge for a tough workout, AG1 can be the ticket. If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1, and that's why I've partnered with them for so long. If you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3, K2, and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com slash the stacks. That's drinkag1.com slash the stacks. Check it out. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Okay, I want to talk a little bit about you as a writer. How did you know you wanted to be a writer? And how did you get into being a journalist and like doing like kind of like the celebrity view beat? Like how did this kind of come about in your life? So I wanted to be a writer and a book writer since I was in the second grade. Well, congratulations on your book then. (laughs) Thank thank you very much. It's the only thing I ever wanted to do. Uh, Um, I I grew up as the son of immigrants from Iran um, who, you know, when they moved here um, in the late 70s and I was born here, um, they knew how important it was to read and they knew how important it was to tell stories. And so I grew up going to the library every single week. I grew up reading all the boxcar children books and Little House on the Prairie and um, just like living at the library Mm. um, uh, in elementary school and middle school and always just wanting to be a writer. And I had wonderful teachers who who were worried about my future. And so they would caution me and say, well, you can be an author. You can try to be a writer, but you should probably come up with something that's a little more stable. And um, so starting in junior high school, I was um, in journalism and I worked in journalism in junior high school. I worked in journalism in high school. Um, I went to Stanford and edited um, uh, the Stanford Daily and um, just sort of became a journalist, you know, out of this cautionary tale of, you know, you should have a 
uh, another job, uh, a more stable job. And at that time, journalism did seem like a very stable job. Um, and it still is, but it's different now. Um, yeah. So I, um, I um, got into journalism you know, out of college and was um, uh, editor at Newsweek when I was 21. And this was back when Newsweek was in every grocery store um, and learned from the best writers at Newsweek and had the best editors there who really um, taught me the value of um, making sure every single word carried weight, making sure that every quote that you use is as economical and impactful as it needs to be, not you know, they really tightened me as a writer and really strengthened me as a writer. And really like, that's where I found my voice as a writer. Um, and, and so I always knew I wanted to write a book and always had, you know, the dream of wanting to write a book, but I was just waiting for the right time. And also I didn't think I could write a book in my twenties because I didn't think I'd fully developed and found my voice and found sort of who I was as a writer. Um, and I don't know if I would have been able to, to, to sort of balance something of this scope and write a hundred thousand words on one subject in my twenties. So I'm glad that I waited because there were ideas that I had and things that I was, was curious about, um, um, earlier in my career, but I am glad that I waited. I'm now, um, I wrote this book, um, in my thirties and I'm now 37. So I feel like I waited enough and I, and I got it right because, because I was patient and wanted to make sure that I was, had, had evolved enough as a writer before I did my first book. That's so interesting. Did you, you, since you are a journalist, you know, by day, and then you wrote this book, and I know that you also reported, obviously, you said on The View, but how did you kind of find time to write this book? And did you have to write in any different way or like in a different location when you were working on the book versus being at the office, you know, doing your reporting? Like, how did you kind of balance these two kinds of writing? It was really, really hard for me at first because I am so used to instant gratification. So I'm used to doing an interview, mm. working on it, and then having it posted and printed and having everyone react to it and then moving on to the next thing. So what the hardest part, there were a few hard parts, but I think one of the hardest parts was getting these great, interesting interviews and really, really wanting people to read what I just discovered and having to be patient and having to mm. wait and knowing that you know this was a really long process. And, um, uh, I was able to figure it out because originally I thought, okay, this is just going to be a hundred thousand words is like, you know, 40 cover stories that I would write for work or like 40 (laughs) long features. So I was like, it's just, you know, I could do that in a year. It's easy. I'll, you know, crank that out. It's fine. But I, um, discovered it doesn't work that way because it's one narrative and, and thematically and trying to bridge everything together and connect everything together. It just, it that wasn't like a realistic way to look at it. Right. So um, I was very lucky because my friend Kate Arthur, um, who was my editor um, at the Daily Beast where I worked, um, came on board and worked with me on this. And she would read every chapter. Like I, we would have a schedule where I would write a chapter and then I would send it to her and she would read it. And and then it became more manageable because then I sort of felt like I had to get the next chapter to her. And I the hardest thing about writing a book is like you look, I mean, it looks so far, like the end is so far. Mm-hmm. So to have that and to be able to compartmentalize it really helped and allowed me to sort of be able to do it. And I would write, I would write over the weekends, I would write at night, um, but it was mostly done over the weekends. Like I would just sort of sit in my apartment on um, Saturdays and Sundays and just work on a chapter and try to get a chapter done um, uh, in a weekend or try to get half a chapter done in a weekend. And did you have, or do you have any reading snacks, beverages, rituals? Do you light a candle? Do you open a window? Do you spray perfume? <laughs> like, do you have anything like that? You have to eat gummy bears. 
I love gummy bears. I do. <laughs> I am mean, a nervous snacker when I'm writing. Okay. I find that if I, I find that I'm much better at writing if it's at night. Okay. So if it's like, if I'm not the kind of person and I envy the kind of writers that are like, that are like, I wake up at you know seven and I work for an hour and a half and that's my writing. I'm done. I can't, I don't think I could function like that. So I, um, my prime like writing time where I feel like the the writing finally comes together and starts to click. Like I can start earlier in the day, but like it usually won't start to click until like nine, 10, 11, 12, one, two. Like I feel like Whoa. it's a quiet time and I can actually start to, and pieces actually start to come together. And I write much faster at night. Perhaps it's because I'm trying to go to bed and, and I'm not as, um, there's something about the nerves that calm down at night. Like you're always nervous when you're starting to write something. And so I think, I think at night I'm less nervous as a writer and it's easier for me to write. Interesting. And were there any books that you were reading or things that you were watching that were either inspiring to you or helping you on your journey, like through your writing process, um, other authors who are writing similar things, like just like the kind of stuff that was kind of going into your brain aside from like view clips. I, um, so almost every co-host on the view had written a book. Okay. Um, or all the major ones had. So I I went through a period where I read Barbara Walters' book, Audition. Mm-hmm. Um, I read Rosie O'Donnell's two books, Find Me and Celebrity Detox. And I read Star Jones's, Star Jones also wrote a book. It was a self-help book um, uh, that um, was, it was fascinating to sort of see her, her thought process. So I had a stack of books written by co-hosts of The View and I still do in my um, uh, apartment and it was weird at first because I was like, if someone comes in and sees these books, they like don't match with the other books on my bookshelf. <laughs> but <laughs> but um, you contain multitudes, don't worry. <laughs> right, but um, uh, but so I have the stack, and I would like refer to the, sometimes if I was writing a character, I would refer to the book and try to sort of remind myself how that person thought or what their thought process was, which helped tremendously sort of because I wanted to make sure that every person I wrote about was fully three dimensional and wasn't a caricature and wasn't just on the surface. I really wanted to sort of get the, get to the heart of who all the women um, in the book are. Right. Do you feel like there are other books that are maybe not about the view, but are similar to what you've done that you would recommend to people who liked your book? I know you mentioned game change, which I've read and is really great. Um, game tra- game change is great. Um, I top of the morning, Brian Stelter's book about today, the today show and good morning America, um, was a book that I reread before I started working on this just to see how Brian had done it because I know that Brian spent a long time also doing lots of interviews with people, um, in the TV industry. Um, but then I would also just sort of start to think like in a, like in literary ways, or I'd read I mean, this has nothing to do with my book, but I would read F. Scott Fitzgerald or like I would often read writers that I really admired or loved growing up if I felt stuck just to remind myself like how the strings of a narrative come together. Yeah. Or Tobias Wolf. Like I read, I read uh, Tobias Wolf. um, I took classes from Tobias Wolf at Stanford and I just remember the period of being in his class and what it was like and what it meant. And so I would read things that I you know, read when I was younger, just to remember the feeling of like how great writing is and what I aspire to be. That's awesome. I love that. Um, I I feel like that also is pretty common. A lot of times when I speak to authors about what they were reading while they were writing, it's oftentimes like not really like there's the research portion, but then there's also the part that's like, I was reading so-and-so because I love their sentences. And like, 
it had nothing to do with my it topic. It had nothing to do with actually yeah. what you're writing. But I also find it hard to read to, – I found it hard to read new things because mm. I also didn't want to be – like I have to be so focused in this story and there were so many threads. The story that I, I found it hard – um, unless I was on vacation or I was doing it in a very like compressed period of time, I found it hard to have, um, a, 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 and I'm a big reader, but I found it hard to have like a lot of books that I would be going through because I felt like it kind of diverted my creative energy yeah. and then I would be, would be lost in a different narrative. And I wanted to stay as focused as I could on this current story. That's interesting. Did you find any like pushback on the book or like reactions that surprised you once it was released into the world? I was actually surprised by the number of people um, who told me that they thought the book was fair because Hmm. it is a dramatic book and it is, I think it's sometimes hard to see yourself reflected back in a book or to be a producer and see the show that you worked on reflected back in someone else's words but there were a lot of people and some of them were anonymous who felt like the book was really fair and felt like I humanized a lot of different people and tried to be as fair as possible to everyone. Um, uh, uh, there was a, there was a, there were some moments where Rosie O'Donnell wasn't, she, I don't think she'd read the book, but she had seen sort of clips of things or headlines and she was um, uh, unhappy about them. And I was, I didn't want her to be unhappy about them. I was, you know, I wasn't, that wasn't my intention in, in writing the book. I never want anyone to be unhappy with, you know, the journalism I'm doing, but I felt like the book is fair to Rosie. And I was trying to sort of accurately capture who she is and what she was like on that show. I think the book is very fair to Rosie. I thought it was like, yeah, I think she came off like pretty good considering I didn't, I, I felt like when I finished reading the book, I was more into Rosie than I had been going into it, which is probably a sign of like good reporting that you <laughs> that you gave both sides of it. I'd kind of forgotten about how great she had been on her own show and like how she'd been such an advocate for the arts. And like I'd kind of forgotten a lot of her prior life. And so I felt like you really rounded her out again. And it was really important for me to do that. I have um, chapter 11 is an entire chapter devoted to the Rosie O'Donnell show Mm -hmm. and how influential and important that show was in daytime TV, because we in the 90s, there was a period where daytime TV was only about paternity tests and makeovers. And, you know, it was very salacious. Um, And Rosie, what she did was she wanted to make it into basically the, the daytime version of The Tonight Show. Right. And she wanted to be a safe space for celebrities. And she wanted to you know, bring kids in and, you know, tell everyone to get a mammogram and raise awareness for breast cancer month. And she did a lot of good. And that show was, you know, really, really, really important. Um, almost as important, I think, as the Oprah Winfrey show, even though it only lasted for six seasons. And I wanted to, it was important for me to write about that because I thought, I thought that everyone needed that context and people do respond very much like you, you, you have in that they'd forgotten or they weren't aware of, of, or, or, you know, it's been a while. So they, you know, they, they didn't remember that side of Rosie and how we, we came to love Rosie um, in the 90s as a result of her talk show. Right. Because her fight with Elizabeth Hasselbeck for me was like such an iconic moment of like my life because I had been a fan of The View. And I remember like watching that episode and being like, pay off. Like, finally, I'm getting this like crazy scene. But that's like what I like occupies my mind for both of them. And when I lived in New York, I once went on a run in Central Park and I saw Elizabeth Hasselbeck and I was like legit starstruck in a way that shocked me because I like was like one of those people you mentioned in the book who like loved to hate her. 
But I saw her and I was like, oh, my God, she's so skinny. And she was like bundled up, like running through Central Park in the middle of the winter. And she had just left the view like two weeks before or something. And I remember being like, oh, my God. Um, But anyways, do you know what comes next for you? Do you know what what you're going to write next if you're going to write another book or is it too soon? I have a couple ideas. Um, I I, I wanted to take some time just to sort of make sure that the next book that I write is what I really want to write because now that I've been through it, I know how much of yourself you have to give and how much you have to sacrifice in terms of, you know, time spent with friends or loved ones or, I mean, you really have to make the book a priority. Um, uh, But I do have some ideas and I, and I have, um, I I have some ideas. Yes. But I'm not a hundred percent sure what my next book will be. Okay, well, we're very excited now. Uh, Cliffhanger. I guess my last question for you is if you could have one person, dead or alive, read your book, Ladies Who Punch, who would it be? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think Hillary Clinton. Mm. Because I'm curious, and I tried to interview Hillary Clinton for the book. Um, I'm curious as to what she thinks about what the show means and what it did to culture and if she feels like it helped improve the dialogue about, you know, women and female empowerment, or if she feels like it, if if the co-hosts had to endure a double standard in the same way she did, um, or if they, Barbara Walters wasn't taken seriously for wanting to do the view and if she could sympathize with, with that. Hmm, that's a really good answer. Ramin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for having me. This was really fun. And everybody else, go out and get Ladies Who Punch, the explosive inside story of The View. It's out in the world. Um, I also listen to the audiobook, and it's really great. So if you're an audiobook person, I highly recommend it. But it's an awesome book. And even if you don't know The View or don't know a lot about The View, I feel like the book totally works. Like it's still a really great, interesting story. So don't be shy if you're like, I never watched that show. But Ramin, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. And everybody else, we'll see you guys in the stacks. That does it for us today. Thank you guys so much for listening to The Short Stacks. And thank you to Ramin Satuda for joining us. Everything we talk about on today's show can be found in the show notes. For more from The Stacks, follow us on social media at The Stacks Pod on Instagram and at The Stacks Pod underscore on Twitter. And check out our website, thestackspodcast.com. To join the Stacks Pack and get inside access to this show, go to patreon.com slash the Stacks. Make sure you're subscribed to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening through Apple Podcasts, please take a moment to rate and review the show. Our graphic designer is Robin McCrite, and our theme music is from Tagirajis. This episode of The Short Stacks was created and produced by me, Tracy Thomas. 